America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. Greetings from the ReliefFactor.com studio out in California. And last week, I began a conversation during this, the last radio hour of the week, the Hillsdale Dialogue, with Dr. Larry Arn about Article 2, except I only mentioned it. We never got to it because Theresa May had just resigned, and I took advantage of Dr. Arn's expertise in all things British, and we didn't get back to it. But now we have to get back to it. So this week, Article 2. Dr. Arn, all things Hillsdale, by the way, collected at hillsdale.edu, including the opportunity to sign up for Imprimus, and all of our conversations, dating back to 2013, are collected at Hugh for Hillsdale. Dr. Arn, Article 2 begins with this very short sentence. The executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States. He shall hold his office during the term of four years, and together with the vice president, chosen for the same term, be elected as foes. Then there follow seven paragraphs of, of basically mechanics. Doesn't really matter. What is that first sentence, the executive power shall be vested in the president of the United States, mean? Um, so <clears throat> it's actually the key to the Constitution. Uh, the Constitution is seven articles, and the first three are the ones that set up the three branches. And all of them begin with the words, the executive, the judicial, actually the legislative one is slightly different. All the legislative power shall be vested to emphasize that the delegation of lawmaking is the worst thing, which is, of course, precisely what we've done. Eighty percent of our laws are made not by Congress anymore. Well, the, the, so the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States. That's, that power, first of all, that's a mighty power because it's the power to act. It's cognate with the word execute, right? And that's, by the way, why you need government. One of the two prime reasons why you need governments is that the people and their rights have enemies, and those enemies have to be fought. And those enemies are both foreign and domestic. And what, what is a domestic enemy? Well, for example, a murderer. Although it's, it's not properly a federal crime, but extortion, all kinds of things, right? And somebody has to stop that. And the people who do things like that are capable of violence. And so they have to be met with violence. And that's a kind of work, right? That, that, that kind of work is acting in response to events constantly, sizing up the events, making decisions. It, 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 it's quick, and it's on a timetable, constant. I said to Mike Pence years ago, I gave him the advice. He said, you think I should, if I decide to run for something else, I should run for senator or governor? And I said, Governor. And he said, that was quick. I said, yeah, easy to see. And he said, uh, um, why? And I said, well, a man might speculate you want to be president of the United States. <laughs> and he said, we never say that. And I said, nonetheless. And he <laughs> said, I said, you should learn how to do it. It's different, you know? Because yeah. congressmen have to be brave and they have to act in real time. What they're acting about is something that will take effect over a long time. May, may I trot out to you one of, one of my theories behind the rise of Mayor Pete Buttigieg is that mayors are actually executives. And although South Bend is only a city of 100,000, those 100,000 can find Pete Buttigieg on the street. They can call him up at night. He has to execute the trash collection. He has to execute the pothole repair. He has to make sure that the parks are safe. 
That's a different thing entirely than being on the city council of South Bend or the legislature of Indiana. It is. It is. And it, it depends. You know, cities sometimes have different forms, and the mayor is not really a powerful executive, but it, I think in South Bend he is. And that's, and that's what the deal is, see? So, for, so the first reason to separate it into its own thing, and remember, when we separate the powers, we don't just put them in separate clauses of the Constitution. We have separate methods for their appointment. The legislative and the judicial branch each trace their authority back to us directly. They are elected by the people. The judicial branch is blessed by both branches. The president nominates and the Congress confirms. It's the indirect branch. And judging, they think, is the thing that should be like that. And they're right. But both the the president and the Congress are radically co-equal branches. And the two reasons for that, one is execution is different from deliberation about about, uh, laws, legislating. And so they're different kinds of things. And they fall naturally into different categories. But then the second reason is... It divides those two awesome powers, legislative and executive, into two separate authorities with direct uh, authority traced back to the sovereign people of the country. And that means they're both mighty powers and they offset each other. And so the separation of powers is crucial. Madison says the structure of the Constitution is the most important thing about it, not its particular provisions. Not its Bill of Rights, when he, which he first opposed and wrote. So what is it, that's it. Our safety, our control of the government, our ability to liberate the government, to be strong, to protect us, is written into this structure, this separation of powers. And it's everything in the Constitution. Let me then uh, go to the two paragraphs that end Section 1 of Article 3. The president shall, at stated times, receive for his services a compensation, which shall neither be increased nor diminished during the period for which he has been elected, and he shall not receive within that period any other emolument from the United States or any of them. Before he entered on the execution of his office, he shall take the following oath or affirmation. Quote, I do solemnly swear, parens or affirm, that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. I think these are both important clauses, Dr. Arn. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that, that means the president can't be, uh, the, the first thing, the emoluments clause, means the president can't be beholden to some other power, right? Political power is what it's talking about. Uh, you know, there's a controversy about Trump because Trump makes a lot of money, and sometimes there are public political events in the Trump Hotel in D.C. And yeah, foreigners stay at the Trump Hotel and they pay the Trump company money. Yeah, and th- that's that's not different in principle from the fact that you know presidents put their stuff, and you know politicians often put their stuff in a blind trust, and that means it still keeps making money. And, and uh, so the, the judgment that has to be made by the people ultimately is, are the opponents of Trump correct that that places him in a conflict of interest? And that's what the emolument clause is, is meant to stop. And so my own belief is it's a legitimate question, and the answer is no, it doesn't. Yeah. Well put. Uh, and and uh, so, so there's that. Now, the second thing, the oath, 
everybody who serves under the authority of the American government, down to the enlisted men in the in the uh, Army and Navy and Marines and Air Force, they have to take an oath. It's said that they have to take an oath. The one for the president is the only one prescribed verbatim in the Constitution. That's what I and, think is important. Yep. Yeah, and it's and it, and and you know if you want to if you look at the first inaugural address of Abraham Lincoln, you know one of the greatest utterances ever. It's a beautiful. It's different from the second inaugural, which is a religious political poem, very beautiful. Uh, the first is an argument, and in this argument, he starts with his oath. I'm going to take an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States. And so I don't find secession written in the document. Huh. And disbanded uh, union is a very big thing, and I am going to stop it. And the first way I'm going to stop it is by this speech. I am appealing not to do this thing. The patriot graves and hearthstones of America call out. That's a paraphrase. It's not quite accurate. Call out. And uh, yesterday I was asked by a friend, a mutual friend of ours, to tell me about hearthstones. He's younger than we are and uh, a and, uh, famous person. And I said, yeah, well, you know, in Lincoln's day, uh, light and heat were scarce. And light at night was very scarce. But there was a fire burning. And so people gathered around the hearth and the stones in front of it to stay warm and be able to see. Lincoln did a lot of his reading by firelight. And so that, that, that's, it, it was the center of the gathering of the family. And that means that we are related to each other. You know, Churchill, uh, Lincoln, Lincoln. And so the oath is to keep the family together. That's it. That's it. That's how Lincoln read it. And that's what, according to that principle, is what got him through the Civil War. I will be right back. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Section 2 of Article 2 is next. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's this week's Hillsdale Dialogue on the Hugh Hewitt Show from the ReliefFactor.com studio in California. I am talking with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Section 2, Article 2 begins, Dr. Arn of the Constitution. The president shall be commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. He may require the opinion in writing of the principal officer in each of the executive departments upon any subject relating to the duties of their respective office, and he shall have the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. He shall have power by and with advice consent of the Senate to make treaties, provided two-thirds of the senators present concur. And he shall nominate, and by with the advice and consent of the Senate, shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and councils, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for, and which shall be established by law. But the Congress may vest the appointment of such inferior offices as they think proper in the president alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of departments. The president shall have the power to fill up all vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of their next session. That's it. That's his entire grant of power. And yet it is right. enough to run this government of two million people and this military that is the most awesome in history. That's right. That's right. 
the part of the Constitution that Churchill envied first and most was commander-in-chief. And he thought, you know, he was a big supporter of the British Constitution and a big supporter of the American Constitution. And sometimes he said the British was better, especially after he met Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, says, wow. But this provision, he thought, was a clear winner for the United States because Britain suffered in the First World War because it was never clear who was in charge. And it actually, it meant that, by the way, direction of the war devolved to generals who were famous and respected. And who are these politicians, right? And that's one reason why so many people died, because they just kept going across the, 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 the death ground in, in between the lines of trenches, and they, you know, Britain lost a million people. So, so Churchill always, and see, Churchill fixed that in the Second World War because he appointed himself Minister of Defense. And last week you mentioned a story about him that he told the House of Commons, you can have one of my jobs, sorry, all of my jobs, but not one of my jobs. Because the motion was that he's doing too much and he can't keep up with everything and he should just be the prime minister. And so the, the motion of no confidence collapsed when he said, you can have all of them, but not one of them. And that's because he learned in the First World War that you have to have unity of command in a war. And the United States has got that in spades. It also has in there the note that he may not pardon in cases of impeachment. And, and I think between this and the other provisions about impeachment, as we are talking about the conflict that is growing between the president and the Congress, that we have to recognize impeachment is a political process that he cannot escape, but it's also the only political process by which Congress can rid itself of a president they do not like. There is no alternative. This whole special counsel, independent counsel stuff, can I indict the president? That's not what the framers had in mind. They understood it would be traumatic and important, but if they were going to do it, they had to do it, not a judge. Well, so I'll say that it is a political process, and it's also a legal process, and it has to be both. And because uh, each empowers and restricts the other. So first of all, he's, he's, he can't be impeached because they don't like him, because, you know, whoever likes the president, right? Um, he can only be impeached for treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors. One minute to the break. Keep going. High crimes and misdemeanors is sort of a made-up thing. But second, the House impeaches... And then they prosecute before the Senate. There's a trial, you see, a two-step process demanding uh, extraordinary majorities in the Senate. And that means it's hard to do. But think about it. If you made, a, if you made Robert Mueller able to control the president, he would be the president. Yes. So it takes political people to do it. But they and, follow and the legal process. I distinguish impeachment from the trial, but impeachment, they can impeach him for anything, even though they're not supposed to. They could impeach him for his ties if they didn't like it. I'll be right back with Dr. Arm. We continue about this massive conflict erupting in the United States between the president and the House of Representatives. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College. What I'm reviewing today is Article 2 of the Constitution. If you're a graduate of Hillsdale, you're wondering, why am I doing that? I learned that in my freshman seminar and maybe even in high school, and the answer is because not many people repair to the actual document anymore, and I'm trying to educate the media that listens uh, you know, obsessively to this show. Dr. Larry Arn, Section <laughs> 3 reads, 
He shall from time to time give, he being the president, shall from time to time give to the Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. He may, on extraordinary occasions, convene both houses or either of them. And in case of disagreement between them with respect to the time of adjournment, he may adjourn them to such time as he shall think proper. He shall receive ambassadors and other public ministers. He shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed and shall commission all the officers of the United States. Section 4. The president, vice president, all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, Dr. Art, my first question is one of just history. I don't believe a president has ever adjourned the Congress, but it does seem to me that that power is an interesting one, that Mitch McConnell could move adjournment and succeed with 51 votes or 50 votes, and Nancy Pelosi might disagree, but but the president could then adjourn them. What would happen next? Well, then they'd be adjourned until time for them to meet again. And it's uh, there's an amendment in the Constitution that says that they'll meet every year beginning on January 3rd. So they he can adjourn them for now under the amended Constitution. He can adjourn them for however much time there is till the next one. And, you know, he could conceivably adjourn them on January the 4th. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Mitch could, Mitch could adjourn again and then have the same situation again. Do you think that will ever yeah. happen? I, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> in, in, in general, the states are better governed. You know, Las Nevada and Texas are examples. When their legislature meets every other year and not for long. Uh, uh, so I, I, I hope so. But think, think about that. You know, what that's about, it's, it's, you know, it's good to know a little history, and, and, and it's good to know the history with which the founders were acquainted. And, of course, they had a lot of British history in them. And come to find out in the great conflicts, because the British Constitution is really the product of the great conflicts that arose between the king and the parliament. Yes. And, and so, the, you know, the, uh, the, the king's ministers have been, over the course of centuries, dragged into the House of Commons now. And the king still has the formal power to appoint them, but it's understood he has to do what he's told. And if they're answerable to anybody, Churchill always believed that there's separation of powers between legislative and executive in Britain, and better than here, he would argue, because the government is in the legislature, and they've got to justify themselves in open debate every week. So, so don't, don't think of that. Churchill did not think of that as a unitary system. So it, it, but, you know, and then the great example is in the, in the English Revolution, where they, uh, the English Civil War, where they chopped off the head of, of Charles I, Oliver Cromwell took over. And, you know, it was a great parliament. He was in it that, that started the rebellion that led to an, another important step in the control of the monarchy. And remember, if the monarch is born to the job, what control do the people have if he's arbitrary? So something had to change in Britain, right? And they cut yep. off his head. But then this parliament ossified and stayed too long. It's called the Long Parliament. And it was adjourned when Cromwell, then the executive, called Lord Protector, and, you know, that's the only, he's the only person that ever held, held that job. They went back to the monarchy as soon as he was dead. 
But he walks in and he says, you have been in famous words that were said to Neville Chamberlain, by the way, that broke his government in May 1940 that led to Churchill taking over. He said, you've been here too long for any good that you're doing. In the name of God, go. You know, in many respects, last week we were talking about Theresa May resigning. The same sentiment is what eventually enveloped and overwhelmed her, is that people wanted her to go. Eventually people say enough. You know, this is absurd. Yeah. And, uh, and so the, the president and, you know, they they are mindful of that. And, you know, Congress gets in and it stays forever. Now, that can't happen here because in, in Britain, there's now a five year limit on a government. But there for, forever, there was not. And then it was seven years and now it's five. But, uh, uh, you know, our House of Representatives is elected every two years and a third of the Senate every two years. And that means that that clause in the Constitution has not been terribly important. There's an adjournment coming soon enough anyway. Now, let me play for you. We've, we've laid out all of the powers of the president. And uh, last week, Nancy Pelosi made an extraordinary statement after her argument with the president and the meeting went sideways. Get ready for cut number seven, gentlemen. And she said an extraordinary thing, which I think will define the next year and a half. Uh, cut number seven. Nancy Pelosi, after leaving the White House when a President Trump said, we've just got, we got nothing to talk about. It's never been partisan. We don't want it to be partisan now. Uh, but I, I can only think that he wasn't up to the task of figuring out the difficult choices of how to uh, cover the cost of what the important infrastructure legislation uh, that we had talked about three weeks before. So, uh, so, but the president, again, stormed out. I think, what, first pound the table, walk out the door. What? Next time, have the TV cameras in there while I have my say. That didn't work for him either. And now this time, another temper tantrum. uh, uh, Again, I pray for the president of the United States. I wish that his family or his administration or his staff would have an intervention for the good of the country. So, Doctor, uh, the president strongly disputes that and had uh, eyewitness testimony that he had Sarah Huckabee and Meredith Schlapp and Larry Kudlow all say that's not true. But an intervention is a loaded term. It suggests substance abuse, addiction to alcohol, a mental breakdown. This is not ordinary in American politics for a Speaker of the House to accuse a president of that? Uh, well, first of all, it's a universal rule in politics. It's actually a, a, a key element of the natural law that whenever a politician says this is not partisan, what follows is always partisan. Yes, it is. <laughs> and, you know, Winston Churchill himself was guilty of that, right? I pointed out in the preface to the last volume of the Churchill biography. So I'm not condemning her for it. This is how it's fought. Right. But remember, they're they're making war on him. You know, they they his, his private affairs, you know, this uh, this uh, agitation about the independent council and about the Russia con- collusion and, you know, a hostile independent council, M- Mueller, who makes it plain, by the way, that he's hostile uh, is is, uh, you know, looking into the Russia allegations and finds there's nothing to them. But then on obstruction of justice, he didn't make particular claims. 
He just left it open. And then he listed a bunch of things that might have been obstruction of justice. And those things are chiefly a list of, of the president giving directives to the subordinate officers whom we've just established the Constitution says work for him. And so the president appoints the attorney general with advice and consent of the of the of the uh, Senate, and only he has the power to dismiss. And so that's a power he's given. And I repeat the point: it's very fundamental. We need a strong government, and it needs to be under our control. And in our country, the separation of powers is the chief mechanism for getting that good those two good things which we have had for longer than anyone ever had under a single constitution. And so the president, uh, the, the, the Congress can't order about the subordinate officers of the president and those who report directly to him outside the congressionally established agencies. The, the Congress can call the attorney general and make him come. And he goes. And he goes. And then he can, and then, and then they can ask him questions that bear on his advice to the president, and he can assert the executive privilege, right? And that's and that and remember, that gets a bad name under Nixon. But the truth is, you have to have that because otherwise there can't be councils among people to decide what to do. It will affect all their advice if they know that everything's going to be published. And, you know, like in, you know, let's say you're thinking about some country or you're running a college and you're thinking about some person and somebody says, you know, I think that guy's just a crud. Well, they might just say that off as a joke or to make everybody laugh. And then it gets published and all of a sudden you can't talk anymore. Right. Right. So but then if they work for the president directly, they can't subpoena them at all. Like Don McGahn. Right. And this is the clearest thing. One of the dispositive rulings about, you know, the former White House counsel, Don McGahn, the one who was in charge of picking all those judges, uh, uh, he, they, they subpoenaed him, and he's not going to go. No, and, and he should not go. And one of the lead uh, statements about that is by Janet Reno, Attorney General under Obama, right? Obama refused. No, Janet Reno under Clinton, under Clinton. Clinton, sorry, under Clinton. And, and, uh, and so that's, uh, so, yeah, it's just established. The president has his world, and he has to have it, and he has to have it, one, so he can be effective, and more importantly, so that the powers can be separated and we can keep control of the government. That is, that is everything. Now, when you talk about the McGahn, uh, we, we got one minute to the break, the, this is not even up for debate but yet most of american media seems to think it's a legitimate controversy you cannot yeah. subpoena the president's personal staff you know i i'm uh, in the last three or four years i've marveled more than any time in my life at the sophistication of the media of america because they managed to get everything 180 degrees wrong and it's spot on and it's you know don mcgann won't go well, the proper reaction to that is, of course he won't go. They never have gone. Nobody, Democrat, Republican, left, right, they never go. And I right. hope that they sue, because then we will educate the media only when the Supreme Court answers, I would imagine, 9-0. Of course not. 
Uh, that it's just it, that is a breach. It is a uh, an aberration, but it doesn't seem that way to me. And when we come back from break, I'm going to talk with Doctor Arn about how he sees this playing out because I do think the Democratic Party seems to me to be irrevocably committed to impeachment proceedings because of the nature of their base. When we come back, we'll see if Dr. Arn agrees on the Hillsdale Dialogue, all things Hillsdale, collected at hillsdale.edu. Welcome back, America, to the ReliefFactor.com studio, West Coast. I'm heading back to D.C. After enjoying Generalissimo's wedding last weekend, I'm going back to the, to the swamp, and I'm looking forward to that. Dr. Arn is going to be off cruising somewhere, I think. Dr. Arn, let's go back to what we left off at at the last segment. The, it seems to me, and I don't know if you agree with me, that the House is going to be obliged to impeach the president, uh, at least get to a vote on whether he ought to be impeached, because Nancy Pelosi cannot control her caucus. Uh, AOC, Ilan Omar, Tlaib, the, the new AOC caucus is radical. And there are members of the Judiciary Committee who have never been paid attention to in their lives who now have cameras outside of their office, and that is seductive as can be. It's catnip. How do you see this playing out, and do you agree with my assessment that this is now inevitable? No, I, well, I, I, I think Pelosi is, you know, it's easy to underestimate her, but it's not usually wise. And uh, she, she thinks, appears to think that this is not a good idea. She said, what, two days ago, that, or, or last week is what she said, it, that we're not on a path to impeachment. Well, the impeachment thing is a big step. And, and see, because, the, because, you know, the country is in a bad way. Right, because what was proper under a lawful system or you old established constitution that's worked for a long time is after the election is over, then everybody makes a speech about how the will of the people has been expressed uh, under the constitution, and we respect that, right? You didn't get that so much this time. Now, it doesn't mean the next day you can't go on and say, this guy's a dirty dog or better because we're supposed to actually supposed to be arguing about is who's right about infrastructure, who's right about health care. What should we do about those things, right? Those are big things. What should we do about Iran? There should be arguments about that, right? We don't argue about that. We argue about whether Donald Trump is corrupt and colluded with the Russians and whatever else they bring up every week, right? And that means that it's just obvious on its face. And I'm not blaming anybody. I, I think both parties are culprits here. But I think that we're off the point now. And that's because our affection for our forms of government is eroding. And that's because we have two competing ideas about what the government is for. So it's, in my opinion, rather like the, the lead up to the Civil War. It's like a cold civil war. And, and, and in a cold civil war, I don't expect either side to fight fair. I really don't. The Soviets did not fight the U.S. fair, nor did we fight fair. But I do expect them to fight within the constitutional norms. And one of those norms is that the government doesn't spy on the president. I, I think that the Spygate story is actually the, the crocodile here, is the alligator in the water. It is going to consume this debate because it is so bad what happened. It, uh, you know, I, I, uh, intelligence agencies and the FBI, the largest national law enforcement agency, if they did on the motive that they don't like Trump, 
began an investigation into his campaign, starting with a document, the dossier that comes from hit, you know, opposition research against Trump. Then that's you know they 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 must not do that, and uh, and that's that's you know that's as a, that's you don't like dark state, and this is not dark state, deep state, but it's one step from it, and uh, you know they're. Like in, in the military, thank God it persists, because, you know, they actually, in America, they are the strongest force in America. It would be worse if, if they were playing in elections, but it's almost as bad as the FBI is, and the military does not do that. And, and, and so um, how do you see this playing out? Well, the good news is... Um, this is actually in the hands of the people, where it should be. And there's going to be a big election next year, and it's extremely consequential how it comes out. And the people have to think about this and, and study it and figure it out. It's like the British people voting about Brexit. You know, ordinary common sense should, in the end, prevail. And it turns out Winston Churchill was right and Abraham Lincoln was right. Ordinary common sense is vested chiefly in ordinary people. And so we're going to have a big election and all these things. And see, whether you like Donald Trump or not, you have to admit that he's a fighter. And these things become more explicit because of that. And, yes, and, they uh, do. That, and, and so that's good, right? Whether you like him or not, we get to decide. AOC or, you know, the alternative, the opposite. The opposite. And, and we get to decide that, right? And that's what's that's supposed to be. If we lose our freedom, it'll be because we deserve to. Dr. Larry Arnn of Hillsdale College, enjoy your trip abroad with the Hillsdale Faithful on the Hillsdale Cruise. All things Hillsdale available at hillsdale.edu. Next week, Victor Davis Hanson will be sitting in for Dr. Arnn. We've got lots ahead, America, lots. Don't ever miss even one minute of the next Hugh Hewitt Show.